You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 90. Does formal safety management displace operational knowledge? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray and I'm here with David Proven and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast and welcome back to Australia, David. As we can see from LinkedIn, you've been on a bit of a tour. I have, Drew. I have been um, out of Fortress Australia for the best, well, nearly a month in January in the in the States, which was, um, which was really, really cool. Really cool to be out and about and uh, still COVID free, fortunately. Yeah, and so you caught up with a whole number of people starting rival social media empires. Yeah, so there's yeah some colleagues that many of our listeners would know: Todd Conklin, Ron Gant, Beth Lay, Tom McDaniel. Lots of lots of people in the US that are sort of um, really interested in contemporary safety science. So it was a lot of fun. Andrew, how was your January? Well, while you were gone, we have finally finished the Take Five paper. It has been dusted off and submitted for peer review. Okay, so in a in a coming episode, look out for that. Many listeners will be very grateful that we'll record that one. Yes, until the peer reviewers see the amount of snark that I've snuck in. Uh, I had more junior co-authors this time. Normally I have someone who tells me to pull my head in, uh, but I was co-writing with Yop, who basically just told me to leave it all in. So let's see how it goes. So the tip for uh, listeners will be read the preprint, don't read the final journal version. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to hear what I really think about Take Fives, yes, absolutely. Very good. So in each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. David, you've actually read today's paper, so what's it all about? So so this is one of my favourite papers, uh, and it was a paper that was published in 2014. We'll talk about it in a moment. And I started my PhD in 2015, and it really made me think, at the start of my PhD about the safety profession and and the interaction of the safety profession with within organizations and and really how as the influence of a safety manager or a safety professional increases the less attention gets paid to other actors and practitioners in the organization in relation to safety and so the more emphasis on the safety work and the safety management system the less emphasis on on local safety action in frontline teams so, Drew, that's what we're going to talk about today in this episode is just how, I think, just still from the very end, how, how careful we need to be with uh, balancing uh, system level knowledge and standardization around safety and formalization of safety management with local adaptive practices of frontline teams and what it means to be safe to, to the people who are exposed to the risk. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear what you've got to say about this paper, David, because I, I think sort of em, uh, exchanging our own feelings about this was something that led into when you were doing your PhD and uh, when I was agreeing to help supervise, because uh, I had all my own frustrations with uh, the way so much safety, particularly at the engineering end of safety, the sort of system safety type practices, seemed to flow very much from the top down where the safety work was basically from this like institutionalized knowledge of how safety work is meant to be done instead of bottom up how the industries it was going into actually worked and achieved safety 
Yeah, and I, it's not like everything that we talk about or most things that we talk about, it's not necessarily one or the other. It's just how how balanced is the organisation and how conscious is the organisation in where that emphasis lies and, and what the unintended consequences are of different approaches. So the authors of this paper, are, I think possibly at least two out of the three are ones that we've encountered before. Uh, so the lead author is Peter Armkov, Armklov, and the third author is Christine Storkinson. Uh, so we encountered Christine's work when we were talking about the way in which deregulation of government increased regulation within organisations. And Professor Almklov is, he's not actually a safety scientist, he's more of a social and political scientist who has published a few works sort of stepping into the grounds of safety, applying social and political theory to look at the way in which safety works within organisations. And in the middle, although I don't think we have encountered before, is Professor Ragnar Rosnes. But they're all highly reputable Norwegian scholars. Andrew, out of NTNU and Sintef, and NTNU is sort of feels a little bit like the Griffith Safety Science Innovation Lab. Drew, lots of industry-based research being in Norway, lots of oil and gas, lots of maritime, uh, lots of um, industry-based papers. I sort of had a bit of a look back through Petter's work and, and that, and there's a lot of applied research that goes on uh, out of these institutions, which is really great to see. So the paper is actually called When Safety Science Meets the Practitioners, Does Safety Science Contribute to the Marginalization of Practical Knowledge? Published by three academics rather than three practitioners and in the journal Safety Science in 2014. Andrew, early in the introduction of this paper, first dive straight in, they say there's a common sense notion in applied science where it's the job of the, the scientists to produce information that can then be disseminated down to the practitioners, which enables practitioners to increase their knowledge base and as a consequence, increase their capacity or their power or their impact to handle safety challenges. So knowledge is seen as sort of additive and empowering. So the more we know, the more we um, are able to do and, and, and therefore the more um, confident and, and impactful that we are. And this paper then goes on to say, well, we're going to explore an alternative view in relation to safety and knowledge and power and propose that the introduction of management, safety management regimes that are based on generic safety principles and international standards um, and delivered by safety pr- professionals actually displaces or marginalises existing local system-specific safety knowledge. So rather than adding capacity and being empowering and expanding the knowledge base, it actually substitutes out the local safety knowledge base for this uh, this top-down generic uh, safety management knowledge base. David, before we dive too far into the paper, I think it's probably worth characterising the different types of knowledge that they're talking about, because it's, it's very common for people to complain about new ideas in safety, like uh, safety two and resilience, and say these are just academics coming from the, the outside telling us how to think. And I don't think that is, I mean, there's possibly some of that in this, but a lot of what's happening with introduction of things like safety two is competing against other models of safety, which have also been introduced through this same process. So this paper from 2014 is talking mainly about uh, so things like the idea that we should have safety management systems and the introduction of formalised risk assessments and auditable and paper-based documented safety management. So that's really what, we're, what they're talking about when they talk about 
um, management regimes replacing local safety knowledge. They're not really talking about these new ideas in safety. But it is an interesting question to then think, okay, how much does this apply to when ideas such as safety too start coming out of academia? Are they doing exactly the same thing, trying to colonise that same space? Yeah, absolutely, Drew. And as we get into the uh, case study examples that get drawn on, it is very much about the widespread industry adoption of safety management systems in the late 90s, early 2000s, that this uh, that is the case study the case study basis that this uh, this paper is sort of drawing on for its empirical uh, research component. So, Drew, the premise for this paper, I think, specifically says, look, and there's been a growth in centralised safety management systems based on international standards um, in a number of different industries. There's a growth in uh, safety professionals. There's a growth in external safety consultants. And each of these, the systems and the professionals and the consultants have credibility and get an organisational power, very very much more so than frontline staff and frontline work knowledge. So when the safety management system says something or when the safety profession says something about safety, it is taken more credibly, more influentially than uh, the practitioners when they say something about safety in relation to their own work. And so, Drew, I guess what, what they're... What we're really drawing on in the start of this is how does knowledge and power interrelate inside an organisation to, uh, I suppose, create a dominant organisational narrative around safety or uh, the paper uses the term discourse. What is the organisation's safety discourse and which ones become the most dominant inside the organisation? And when you hear the word discourse, David, and in fact, this paper directly cites who I think is probably the scariest author in social science, Foucault. And the moment, the moment you start hearing about Foucault and you talk you hear about discourse and power, you begin to worry that this is going to descend very quickly into very uh, convoluted and like revolutionary style social science challenges towards the neoliberal state. But they've, they've got really quite a simple explanation for how this plays out in practice that I think is probably accessible. Well, I certainly found it very accessible. They talk about it as competition about who gets to create and own the models for how safety works. Um, and that one, what happens is that if the academics create models that then are coming to the organisation through consultants and regulators and then safety professionals within the organisation, it creates almost like a, monop a monopoly for the picture that we draw of safety. And so everyone else is then forced into the position of learning about how that model works and following along with that model. They never get to argue about what the model looks like. And because the experts are the ones who own the model, they're not listening either. They're not trying to update their model or change their model based on what frontline practitioners are telling them. I think, Drew, that's a that's a good overview. And even just to be more specific for our listeners, when we talk about models, so say the narrative in in the discourse in here has gone from when they talked about the two regimes is is going from a place where safety is based on the deep technical knowledge of the specific frontline operational situations in operations and how to manage those very specific issues through to the model of safety is no longer about that. It's about high level accountabilities, general management processes, compliance auditing, uh, general training activities and um, external certification. So the way, so, so this model is actually the organization's discourse again, but the, the, the model of how do you create safety inside an organization? And, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about models. 
Yeah, how do you create safety and what does good safety look like? So, you know, good safety means that our system has been accredited to ISO 9001-3. Good safety means that all of our safety actions are documented and transparent and auditable and repeatable and happening consistently across the organization. That's what good safety looks like. That's the new model that we're putting in place and then dragging other people in to fit into that way of thinking. So, Drew, I might just, there's a section in the paper early on around theoretical perspectives, but I think we're going to cover most of these when we talk about the case study. So I might just highlight just the general, the general areas of, of interest before we get into the detail of the case study, if that's, if that's okay. So, so just contextually, uh, the paper talks about the rise of international standards. So this idea of making safety look homogenous across all of the organizations within an industry and talk about interoperability and and transparency and ease of regulation and and compliance so that we start to see these international standards and we know all of them in safety and and different industries whether it's iso standards or something and it's a means of actually uh being able to see safety beyond an individual organization so talking about a big rise of 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 that as a as a perspective or or a model about safety then there's also this um, discussion about uh, the safety profession itself and the the power balance created by the rise in the professionalization of of safety management the literature review also talks about social theory like you mentioned before there drew and it's really just talking about that organizations do have a, a discourse and a narrative about how to create safety and this is what we're talking about here about uh, an existing call it an approach, discourse, model, being displaced by a new model. And and how does that happen and what are the consequences of that happening? Dave, it just occurred to me one of the things, they, they don't specifically call this out in the paper, but I, I think it's a sort of like a flag, possibly a red flag for what this type of thinking looks like. And that's the question of whether a safety manager can go from one industry to another. Because I think it started to become asserted in maybe the 1980s and became literally true in the 1990s because of the way safety had been captured by this model. The idea that good safety is good safety. And so if you understand safety, it really shouldn't matter which industry you're applying it on. You know how the systems are supposed to work. You know how the methods are supposed to work. You know, it's not up to you to do the work safely. That's for the local practitioners to understand. But a good safety manager should be able to go from aviation to railways to hospitals, so long as they understand how to do safety well. Do you sort of remember in your career the point at which that became a sort of like idea and then became almost true through the fact that everyone seemed to believe it? It's a really good point, Drew, and it is in the paper. I think it's somewhere in in the notes we'll talk about. But uh, I think for a long time, I held the belief, and, and I know a lot of professionals do, that if you know how to lead safety, then you can go from construction to oil and gas to aviation and and safety processes are safety processes. And that's kind of what this, this paper is sort of saying. That's this these standardized generic models of safety displacing local operational context and knowledge. The more I have thought about it, the more I think that that is a, I don't know, is it scary or, or wild thing to do. Like, I don't think I should have been given a head of safety job in an oil and gas company a month after the Macondo incident when I'd never set foot on a, on a drilling rig and was then responsible for safety of offshore drilling operations all over the world. Like, I don't, I, I just think that the language, the operational context, the the people, the players, the technology, like, I can't imagine as a safety professional how you're impactful in the first 12 months until you actually understand what it is you're trying to trying to influence. 
David, that's a pretty brave thing to say. And I want to push back a little bit because I think based on the way we were managing safety at the time, we'd almost made it true that you could do that. That we got to the point where senior leaders were so responsible for managing these systems, and when the systems were so standardised between organisations, that it was in fact true that you could move from one industry to another. And maybe that's not how we should have been doing safety, but that's how the organisations were doing safety. To lead that, you know, we'd standardised to the point where you could lead the system so long as you understood how the system worked. Yeah, sure. I think that's that. The, the, yeah, my, my, my comment was not necessarily could you, but should you. And then I did advocate for a while for industry-based certifications like certified construction safety professional and a certified um, aviation safety professional and a certified uh, oil and gas or mining safety professional actually have industry-based certifications that actually include the the operational context of those industries and the languages and the technologies and the, the design of work issues. But that didn't seem to fly with safety professionals. And maybe this is a point we can come back to, because I, I don't think it's a no-brainer in either direction. Because if you take the opposite belief, it basically says we can't bring in ideas from outside our industry, because only someone from our industry knows how to do safety in our industry. And that's how you become insular and entrenched and don't learn from advances in safety that happen outside where you're working. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point, Drew. And um not black and black and white, but something to to debate and discuss. We might get some discussion going on LinkedIn, maybe, and see what people have to say. Um, so, Drew, do we want to go to the method now? Uh, sure, but I'm going to let you explain it. So, go ahead. So, they call this case study research, and and some of it's sort of called historical case study research. It looks like they sort of started forming up these ideas and then drew on data that they had. Uh, they did sort of a historical review of the the rail industry in in Norway going all the way back to an, uh, a rail accident that occurred on the 4th of January in 2000 and sort of worked forward about how safety management regime in the industry changed and what it did for the management of safety and, and the organisation. And then they also had a whole lot of data from the maritime sector, uh, like 80 interviews, 300 hours of field observations and, and a whole lot of stuff that sort of coincided with the, um, the publication of the IMO, um, ISM, so the International Maritime Organization International Standard for Safe Maritime Operations and the rise of the external certification to that standard. So it's true. It's a little bit like when we wrote the safety clutter paper, we sort of just saw these patterns in things that we were doing. And then we went back and used the data to actually try to figure, figure things out. It feels to me like this is what happened here, that they'd formed this view of what was going on and then actually sort of traced back through their data to try to make sense of it. Yeah, at the risk of ticking off the authors and in the <laughs> confession that I think you're right, that we did something a little bit similar. I'd argue for some differences in how we did the safety clutter paper. But I think what they've done is they've formed a theory of how this happens, not based on research, but based on their own deep knowledge as academics who have been working industry adjacent for quite sizable careers. So they've seen it happening. They've tried to make sense of what they're seeing. A lot of the data isn't formally collected, it's just in their heads as people who've been around paying close attention. They've then formulated a theory which they have illustrated using two case studies. So having formed this theory, they use the two case studies as ways of illustrating and explaining how this thing that they've observed works. And I don't think it makes it any less true. I think it's just the messiness of good qualitative research is sometimes it doesn't fit into neat models and sometimes we 
collect our data and form our theories before we've even started following a neatly defined method. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right, Drew. And um, it's more of a, the, the case studies are more of a narrative discussion of a narrative account of 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 two industries and um, and how they operate and what's happened over the last uh, decade or two since the paper was up until when the paper was published illustrates the points quite well but doesn't actually call on any 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 data in the paper that you can you can see or refer to yeah but i have to say i think i think they genuinely use these case studies to really effectively illustrate and support the argument that they're making let's talk about these two two case studies just to make it clear so so we talked about the railway norwegian rail um, railway sector and um and maritime sector so if we start with the railway sector um they went back to uh, a train collision in uh january 4th 2000 that had killed 19 people and caused a fire killed 19 people injured 67 others and this was at a time when the norwegian rail sector was still a government monopoly so the management of the infrastructure and the rail operations was done by the one entity and what had happened, and this led to a new safety management system, a new safety uh, regulatory regime, uh, increased investment and recognition of the safety professional discipline, increased dedicated safety resources, a whole new wave of training for all line management and safety professionals in formal safety management systems and, and risk analysis. And then the, the case study goes on to talk about this clash of regimes where you've got this new management-led risk-based approach led by the safety professional in the organization colliding with the existing language and discourse of local operations with deep technical knowledge managing the safety and integrity of their of their local areas of the operation and david i don't know about you and i think this is the power of a good case study to generalize and transfer across situations but i was reading all the detail they were giving about norwegian railways and in my head i was just thinking piper alpha piper alpha You've got this pattern that plays out that you can recognize that you have an accident that is so big that it's not allowed to be investigated by the people who would normally investigate it. And we call in outside experts to challenge that point of view. And those outside experts then draw on theory and knowledge from outside the industry and bring that in to explain the accident and to talk about what we are supposed to do instead. So you see that happening with... Um, mines in Queensland, I think, at the moment. That exact same pattern. We saw the same pattern after the SeaWorld incident, uh, also in Queensland. Saw it with Piper Alpha, where, where they're pushing the safety case regime in consequence. Yep. Pike River in New Zealand. Yep. In, in each case, it's that same thing of we no longer trust the people within that industry to tell us how to achieve safety. We're going to look to the outside and the moment we look to the outside, we look to more formalized knowledge, knowledge that's more neatly packaged, that has some like key definitions and terms, key systems, key practices, clear key models. We use those to explain the accident, and then we use those to explain how to do safety better. Uh, putting that better in scare quotes a little bit. Huh. And one of the core changes here that get talked about a lot in this case study in this paper is that um, there was a former role, um, senior role in the organisation called the head of traffic safety operations or something, which was a, it was like a safe working role, safe working in the context of the rail industry. And they created a new role, which was a general head of health, safety and environment reporting to the CEO, but a generalist practitioner from outside the industry and push that head of traffic operations down a level in the organisation. And there's a lot of discussion in the case study about how that then went on to um, again marginalise this um, domain 
technical specific safety knowledge from being visible and understood by the the most senior people in the organization because it was filtered through a generalist head of safety. David, I'm now imagining an entire research project just tracking what's happened with all of those positions. Because um, I'm, I'm thinking of things like, I don't even know what Australian oil gas does. Did you have a position like chief engineer? Not so much, but yeah, normally there is a technical authority um, structure inside like an oil and gas sector where you'll have heads of all of the different technical disciplines potentially reporting to a chief engineer. And then sometimes in railways, we call it signaler in charge. Just that these, these very... Um, uh, because these are male-dominated organisations, uh, I'm just simply repeating the stereotype, not trying to suggest it's the right thing, but we're talking your greybeards, some old guy who's been in the organisation forever and deeply understands how things work. And all the junior people come to them and look for advice on how to do things. And then we're trying to replace that with more of a sort of like system process-based knowledge, where now the people who own the system are the people that you come and ask what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I mean... Haddon Cave in his Nimrod inquiry made that exact point about the lack of, <laughs> he used some very descriptive terms that I won't use, but greybeards, uh, you know, not having enough greybeards in the organisation who were negative on on any sort of change going on in the operation, but actually just trying to hold the course for good integrity operations. So Drew, beyond route, are you right to move on to the maritime? Uh, yeah, let's go on to the next case study. So the maritime I mentioned earlier was that this this ISM code and, and people in the maritime sector will know this this code published by the IMO and sort of required all uh, maritime organisations to have a safety management system that complied with the code and be certified by independent consultants. So an international standard, international consultants were engaged to support organisations to interpret this code and and develop their safety management system, and then also engage by the organisation to certify uh, their management system. So resulted in lots of generic safety management systems, cutting and pastings of ship SMSs, and the consultants were the ones in this sector that had the power to both interpret the regulation, define the company safety management systems, and then certify and endorse those, those safety management systems for the companies. David, I don't know have I, if I've told you this story before, uh, this is one of the criticisms I had of the whole situation when I was working at University of York. Um, and this is, this is not a criticism of any of the individuals involved, either in academia or in industry. I think it's just this exact same power processes playing out. So we have academics who are writing papers about how to handle the safety of software within systems. So, you know, it's very specialised knowledge. Software development is very much a very technical discipline, but we but the people who do software development don't so often think about what they're doing, they just do it. And so we have the academics creating these models for how software safety works. Those models then get enshrined into regulation and it gets into things like defense standards. And then none of the companies know how they're supposed to be meeting these standards. <laughs> So then they go back to the academics and consultants again to say, can you give us guidance on how we're supposed to be meeting the standards that we only wrote because you told us we had to? And so they write the guidance and then all of the individual companies then need to know, OK, so how do we comply with this guidance? We need to go out and find new consultants and new academics to tell us what we're supposed to do to comply with the guidance, to comply with the regulations that we all only have to do because this is what the academics said we had to do in the first place. I don't want to say that there is... Well, I think I'm kind of implying that there's something fundamentally wrong with that process. 
Um, but what's really wrong is that it all happens in isolation of understanding how do people actually do this work in the first place? Where is the knowledge about how do you write good, safe software? Where's that coming from? And that's being lost because we've overshadowed it with these new models that people have to learn. Yeah, and that's exactly what this paper is is referring to. And I think there's some comments in the paper around, you know, like regulators um, outsourcing to to markets to do what is inherently the role of regulation. So there's a there's a fair fair amount that's broken in the way that um, this system of safety seems to play out in terms of rule setting and rule following, and then compliance assurance that goes on in 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 many different industries. So Drew, let's dive into the discussion. There's a few topics that we'll we'll cover in in the discussion. So like might be coming through in a thread, the, the, the discussion sort of starts off saying that local experience-based knowledge about how to make a local operation safe seems to be rendered irrelevant by the more theoretical and generic discourses of safety that are contained in these standardized accountability-based systems. So discussion leaps straight in and says, yep, this is what happens. The more top-down generalized, compartmentalized, formal safety management processes that, that you put in your organization, uh, the less the organization is going to listen to and learn from and follow the knowledge of the local operation. David, I don't know if I'm telling too many stories in this episode, stepping away from the actual paper. Uh, but I'm going to, give, going to give you another one, which is about producing a course for a company in how to do safety. And the usual process is you sort of produce a draft course and then go to the company and then you get feedback on what's in the course, what's not in the course, what else should be there. And we had this argument because they said there's lots of the processes that we put around design, but there's absolutely nothing in this course about how to design a safe system. And our response to that was, well, yeah, but that's not what teaching you safety is all about. You guys already know this stuff, how to do the design. We're teaching you how to do the safety. And it was interesting because from our point of view, we weren't marginalizing. We were just sort of like demarking expertise, you know, our expertise in the safety process. You guys are already experts in the design. But what was happening is this reinforcement is you're getting sent on a course about safety and you're hearing from the academics and you're not hearing anything about those design processes. It says, you know, these safety processes are more important, even though in reality, you know, the, the actual design processes might have been more important for a design organization. Yeah, I think there's a there's a whole nother sidetrack there about sheep dipping safety programs and, and whether you're doing anything of value in your organization by, again, like we're talking about here, generic safety training that's not tied or connected to the core operational work of the organization. Andrew, I, I guess the, the follow-on from this marginalization of system-specific local safety knowledge is, knowledge is that the organization's attention and resources gets directed towards the development and implementation of these new safety systems and programs and all of the follow-up follow activities that are created by these systems and processes. So it's one of the things that the paper then goes and say, it says, it's not like this local knowledge disappears. It's still actually necessary to actually operate, in this case, trains and ships in a safe manager. So the local operations still need to know and do all the things they used to do. What happens is it's not understood or supported or enabled by the organization. And the big fear his ear is that it over time, it, you know, by not being seen by the organization to be important to safety management, doesn't get supported and therefore um, not reinforced and therefore uh, not 
you know, it's probably into where drift can happen and organizational decisions can be made that are counter to supporting what's actually necessary in for the safety of local operations. As you say that, David, I'm picturing a competency management system where we have 20 items in the competency management system based off our safety management manual, all of which are the safety work site stuff. And then we've got one line in that competency management system, which is understands what the heck they're talking about when it comes to the system. <laughs> it's not that it disappears. It's just that we just haven't focused on it because we've focused on all the other stuff. And that's a great example. Someone, what what is what is the competence to do their work safely look like? And and this would say that bottom up that you ask the practitioners what do people need to know. It would be all of the mentoring and the understanding of the systems and the technologies and the tasks and 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 everything like that. And then when you look at the formal safety system, it says, what does a person need to be competent? And it would say, working at heights training, confined space entry training, safety induction training, and and so on, and wouldn't make reference of any of the core work competencies that um, create safety at a task level. So the next issue they've got here, David, is about compartmentalization of safety. Yeah, look, I think it's about, it's it's sort of covers in, in two ways. It's really about safety becoming a separate discipline all of it on its own and detached from the practice field. So it probably is around the time that this paper starts looking at these industries in the mid 90s through until the early 2000s. And it's seeing the rise of the independent safety function in the organization, the rise of the dedicated safety management system. And a lot of things in the organization with safety in front of it, a safety training program, a safety audit program, a safety competency program, a safety safety investigation program. So just seeing this, this, this professionalization and compartmentalization of safety as a separate discipline from operations. I'm torn between agreeing that that happens and recognizing that this has been happening for so long that I think it actually predates there being a safety academic community, which makes it a little bit hard to blame this on you know, academic knowledge here. Because, <laughs> you know, you look back in the 1930s and 1940s, we had completely separate safety departments. We had people whose entire career was in safety instead of in mining. Um, you know, th th this is not remotely new and it's not... I, I, I don't think it's correct that it's being driven by the academics no no i don't think it's being driven by the academics at all and and clearly it's in the sociology of the professions literature all the way back to the 1950s and 60s in saying that organizations are going to shape themselves over time like this uh with with these internal functions that are separate to the operation governing and supporting the operation so this is not being driven by the academics now, maybe we could think of this as an ongoing process that happens, not just with safety, but with any function within an organization, is that once we start thinking too hard about a function, we start formalizing it. And once we start formalizing it, it starts to become detached from operations and just sort of flows from that operational side into the management side. Uh, we see it with quality. We see it with safety. We see it with human resources. They become their own thing over time. And I think, Drew, the... the, the the consequence here that's called out in this discussion is that the safety consultants and the safety professionals, uh, they have the knowledge of the systems and also the model power. So this is like when there's something to do with safety in the organization, the organization turns to the safety manager and says, what should we do? Uh, as opposed to maybe turning to the local operational teams and saying, what should we do? And I think that's the tension that's called out all the way through this paper is where does the organization look for its uh 
its uh, influence on how safety needs to be managed and, and what's important. And it's not one or the other, but I think what this paper is saying is that if it's not carefully understood and balanced, then it's likely to go all the way to, all the way away from the front line in terms of where the organisation is looking for um, its discourse about safety. So it might be a good time to jump to the section that's actually titled Implications for Safety. And I'm just going to read directly what they say, which is to be relevant and effective, a safety system must be anchored in and relevant for local practice. And I think that's a really good way of putting it, because it's not that this separation and professionalization is wrong. It's that once it becomes detached from local practice to the point where we're not listening to local practice, we're not responding to local practice, we're sort of talking to but not listening to, then we're losing our ability to actually be effective at all at helping local practice be safe. Yeah, exactly right. Andrew, it goes on to talk about the disempowering effect of that model monopoly and that and that power imbalance for local practitioners where they they potentially don't get to convey their concerns, their observations, their potential contributions to the system itself because it the the narrative and the decision making around the safety management in the organization is tightly controlled by the safety professionals and the safety consultants and the senior management. David, I'm just going to actually jump ahead again because I just saw in your notes a bit that I absolutely love, which I think is quoted directly from the paper. Some of our most cherished academic virtues, such as precise definitions, consistency, and exclusion of irrelevant facts and arguments, may at times promote a model monopoly. And I just saw that and I thought, oh gosh, this is exactly what happens, isn't it? The more we try to be good academics, the more our stuff just tries to like override all of the messiness and nuance and reality of what creates safety. That's under the section titled The Role and Responsibilities of Safety Science and Safety Scientists True. So that's speaking directly to you, my friend. Well, what I'm hearing for that is I need to get more involved in the messiness of frontline work, and I'm very happy to take on that responsibility. Very good. Because that's what makes safety science fun. Absolutely right. Yeah. So, so really, and there's a lot in a lot in this paper that sort of goes to the things that we've talked about in previous episodes around audits and 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 clutter and bureaucracy and and so on, paper trails and so on. So you can lump all that together. And and Drew, if we are you ready to go into the conclusion? Now? Sure. So long as in the conclusion, I want to talk a little bit about where Safety 2 fits into this. Okay. Well, let's just conclude on the paper and then we can do that before some of the practical takeaways. So basically it says that um, safety science doesn't have sort of this neutral information when it goes to practitioners. So a new piece of regulation, a new safety management system, a new program in the organization, a new theory or, or research, it doesn't just hit an organization and a frontline practitioner kind of neutrally it comes loaded with a whole heap of power and authority and and impact so what happens then is this is saying is that anything that comes with that sort of power and influence is going to displace and challenge the existing operational safety discourse or model in the organization the assumptions of the old regimes and it's going to sort of sideline that that local system specific knowledge so this push for accountability, standardization, bureaucracy, assurance that goes on across organizations, across industries, this paper, the conclusion of this paper would suggest that be very conscious that unchecked, that is actually going to devalue and, and reduce the support that's flowing towards the things that the people in frontline operational context 
know and believe to be the things that create safety for them and themselves every every day. So Drew, do you want to talk about so this is this has largely been about the rise of new regulatory regimes and safety management systems and what that does for frontline. But you but but you know these these new theories that are coming out every second week from safety academics, how should we think about those? So I guess I wanted to start with the idea that I, I think a lot of people who are very associated with resilience engineering or with safety too would applaud this paper. And they would say, yes, this is exactly what we're talking about. We need to return to listening and being sensitive to frontline work. And I think a lot of people who are reactionary to resilience and safety too would say the exact same thing. They would say, yes, this is exactly what I've been talking about. We've got to stop imposing these theories from the outside and just listen to practitioners. And I think what both people who said that would be doing is engaging in the exact same problem that this paper is talking about. That a lot of what happens is we've got this contest of models and the contest is happening entirely within and between people who are removed from work. So a lot of people who think that they've got really their sort of like finger on the pulse of frontline work and they're the ones who really understand what's going on need to realise that they're actually like squarely in what's being talked about here as academics and consultants and that we're fighting amongst ourselves as a non-working community about whose model should be the one that we get to then impose on the genuine frontline practitioners. And that's a real risk when you come up with even a supposedly very empowering new idea like Safety 2. You know, the language in Safety 2 is so empowering, but the reality can be that it just becomes something that gets institutionalized, put in as a system, a system which is driving safety work and a model of how to see things, which no longer listens because we're so sure that this empowering model is the way that everyone should be seeing things. Yeah, I think it's, I think, Great inside example, Drew. I, I, I agree. I think um, anything that's going generic and and top down in your organisation, ironically, even a even a theory that's based on bottom up safety being being going into your organisation top down, is going to be is going to do what this paper says. It's going to um, set the terms and conditions for the discussion about safety within the organisation and exclude things that don't fit inside that model and therefore um, not listen and not, not, not learn and potentially not match the operational context of the business. So I'm interested where we go then for conclusions and takeaways, because that, that's a real challenge for people who genuinely believe in safety too, is how do we introduce safety too in a safety too way? Yeah, I think there's, so, so the take, practical takeaway, and, and it's a great point, Drew, the, the practical takeaways that I've got here is, you know, is, is the first is just to understand that Safety professionals, safety management systems, external standards, consultants, they actually have a very high level of institutional power um, and credibility when it comes to speaking about safety and describing how safety should be managed. So even if you're a, a safety professional that feels incredibly disempowered, the way you talk about safety, particularly at a practitioner level, even if you, if you think that your management don't listen to you, if you walk out on site as a safety professional and speak to frontline teams about safety, there's a there's a there's a great deal of institutional power that 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 comes from that position and and having safety in your title. So with great power comes great responsibility, I guess, Drew, um, to be very careful about the narrative about safety that you're communicating as a safety professional, 
and the design of company safety processes and how that shapes the discourse and the model inside the organization and everything like we've talked about in every other episode, Drew, about field interactions and safety audits and safety investigations, how we talk and approach safety in the organization defines, well, according to the social theory, will define how the organization thinks about, about safety. And then I think this idea that doing that in a, and knowing that that all of that is going to devalue local practitioner knowledge. So if the safety professional is talking about how to do safety and the safety management system describes how to do safety, Fred or Mary, who are working on, on the production line on the shop floor, no matter how great their idea is for how safety should be managed, they're coming from a long, uh, a significant power imbalance to make a contribution to the organization's kind of discourse around, around safety. So Drew, I guess it's like what you said about implementing safety two in a safety two way means that um, it has to be about actions, not words. It has to be about how the organization actually does safety. And I'd like to believe that that can be led by by the safety profession. And it's not just what we say, it's what we don't say in relation to safety to the discourse. So the scope is the, the scope of the discourse is really what's talked about in relation to safety. So if it's not mentioned in the system and it's not mentioned by the safety professional, it's not seen to be relevant in relation to to safety. So we need to know what we are saying and what we what we and what we are including in our discussion about safety and what we aren't. And the last point there that I've got is is that all of knowing that the formal safety systems of the organization and the formal model of the organization is going to be what consumes organizational resources and attention um, around safety. And that may displace the the resources and attention on the local practices that are required to maintain safe operations in favor of these standardized safety practices. So that, that might mean, Drew, that the organization focuses on making sure that take five gets done rather than this really intricate little valve gets turned three quarters of a turn before any, uh, any, any work happens that day. Thanks, David. That's a great example and a great set of takeaways. The, the only thing I'd leave for our listeners is the... I think there's a preprint of this paper that is available on the web. So if you search for the title, uh, don't be frustrated if you can't immediately locate it. It is actually out there if you'd like to read it. Um, and if you start to read it and you come across the reference to Foucault in the first couple of sentences and you decide it's not for you, um, then I'll refer you instead to there's a Michelin web sketch that you should be able to find on YouTube, which has two Nazi officers on the Eastern Front chatting and they realize that they're dressed in entirely black uniforms with skull and crossbones on their hats and they look at each other and ask, are we the baddies? That's, I think, partly the takeaway message of the paper. Perfect. Drew, I might have to go and reread Foucault's Archaeology of Knowledge in the next week before we publish the, the episode. And what I've been doing, Drew, last 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 episode, for the, I did publish the link to the freely available uh, paper. So I'm one for one at the moment, determined that where there is a publicly available paper, I'll, I'll post the link in the LinkedIn post uh, each week as well. So I'll do that with Petter's preprint that's, um, that's on the NTNU website. Um, or it might even be in academia. I'm not quite sure where. Fantastic, David. So the question we asked this week was, does formal safety management displace operational knowledge? Well, Drew, I, I went for a short answer here. That the short answer is no, that knowledge still exists within the organisation, at least temporarily, um, but it definitely does devalue it in the context of what's important for safety in the organisation. Thanks, David. That's it for this week. We hope you found the episode thought-provoking and, as always, hope ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes, and we genuinely are looking for ideas for our next few episodes, to us on LinkedIn or at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 